The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week rather than our usual one because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined by John Eskenis. Uh, who is Assistant Professor of Politics at the Catholic University of America. And we're going to be talking about the return of John Stewart. Now, John Stewart, as I think probably most listeners will be aware, aware is a comedian um, who dominated uh, late-night television, late-night comedy, um, with his show, uh, The Daily Show, in, and he's now going to return. And the way I think about this, John, is I imagine some producer uh, or some executive in America, ringing up John Stewart and saying, like Rambo, like approaching Rambo in a movie and saying, you know, Donald Trump's back, he's unstoppable, you're the only person <laughs> who, with your savage wit, uh, can destroy him. But John, you wrote a fascinating piece two years ago, which was headlined uh, How John Stewart Made Tucker Carlson. And in this piece, you argued essentially that John Stewart is responsible in many ways, or the phenomenon that produced John Stewart is responsible in many ways um, for the political landscape in America today. For our listeners who haven't read it, could you give us an idea of your argument? Yes, and thanks so much for having me on, Freddie. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the work they're doing at The Spectator. So the, the overall argument is that John Stewart both represents and himself and his show pioneered uh, the kind of infotainment and uh, new journalism as political storytelling that is now totally characterizes the media ecosystem, especially in the United States, but I think in many other places around uh, around the world. Uh, and that is, it's a, a form of journalism that is especially suited to the internet, both in that it relies very heavily on a kind of on a an intensity of media production that it is itself parasitical on. It relies on the, on a huge archive of clips and, and and previous media that can be sorted through, finding the sort of the the um, the needles in the haystack of just the right clip to to make just the right point, and then weaving those into really compelling stories that are actually more compelling than the sort of flat uh, reporting about the news itself. Um, and Stuart revolutionized journalism in the United States uh, with with this phenomenon in the beginning in 1999, uh, which is when he took over The Daily Show. And uh, he was so effective that pretty much all journalism in the United States now takes this form. Now, the, the piece doesn't just argue that it was just imitation of Stuart. It also gets into some of the economic incentives underlying this change in the media landscape, especially the demise of the mass media audience and the advertising business model and the rise of, of much more sort of bespoke subscription-based uh, business models. That's the overall 
argument of the piece. Yes. So on that last point, you have the decline of linear television, yes. uh, as, as people now call it, and uh, the rise of Fox News into this sort of behemoth, sort of almost off the off the collapse of traditional linear American television. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that brought about an absurd kind of news reality that was ripe for the mocking. And yes. uh, the economics of it were ripe for taking apart too because of the changes in technology and so on. Before we get explore that a little bit, for British listeners, should we talk a little bit about how the British television market, if you like, varies from or differs from the American one and how you know, perhaps the situation you have in America, while it's certainly you can see it happening in Britain today, there were various attempts to do a daily show in Britain. I'm not sure any of them succeeded. Um, why do you think that might be? It's a really excellent question. And, and you're, you're right to point out that there's this important sequence that many people don't quite get right, which is linear television begins to decline in the, in the 90s. But it also coincides in the United States with paradoxically, a massive increase in, uh, you know, I think trebling or quadrupling the amount or more, the amount of news that's being produced. Um, and we'll, I'll say a little bit as to why that was. And then later on, there's this shift to streaming uh, and then to ever more sort of fragmentation via the internet of, of the audience. And I think the key mechanism for all this is really the fragmentation of the audience. And this is, to my mind, by the way, this is the great irony of Stuart, is that he always pitches himself as someone speaking for the, the underrepresented middle, the decent side of America. But his show always relied on, on a very specific segment of the, the cable audience, um, much more liberal, much more educated, much wealthier than, uh, the, than any other news show, uh, if you look at the demographics at the time. And very much participated in, in furthering the fragmentation of, of anything like the American middle. So you ask why, you know, why not in the UK? I think there's a few things. One, um, so in the, in the 19, late 1980s, the, the um, uh, FCC, which is the regulatory body that oversees American media, uh, did away with what was called the Fairness Doctrine. Now, the Fairness Doctrine is remembered for, for re- requiring that broadcasters basically exhibit both sides of a political issue. But it had another dimension to it which is that it actually required that broadcasters carry news, produce news in the first place as a public service. So in the United States, we didn't have the BBC. We had a, a private uh, television news, broadcast television news from the, from the beginning, um, you know, ABC, CBS, and NBC being the kind of the big three. Uh, but they were all required to, to have news broadcasts. And because this was a kind of public requirement, this was not seen as a, a profit center. So they produced the news, um, but uh, they didn't expect those news divisions to be profitable. And in fact, they were not profitable. They were massive, uh, massive uh, money losers because you have to have all of this infrastructure of journalists and correspondents and television studios all around the world to produce 30 minutes of evening news or an hour of evening and morning news and whatnot. So when the Fairness Doctrine went away um, and as cable, cable companies and cable television began to compete for attention, compete for profits... Um, in the beginning of the 1980s, each of the major uh, news channels, TV uh, ch- channels, reorganizes their news divisions and basically demands that they become profitable. And the, the paradoxical thing is that if you have high fixed costs, then the only way to become profitable is to actually make much more of whatever the thing you're making is. 
And so what you see um, in, in the 80s is actually an explosion in news. You see the rise of, of news magazine programs, things like 2020 and Dateline. You see um, kind of crossovers where, where new television, pro, television news desks will produce texts that can be syndicated in newspapers and then eventually online. Um, it's the reason why CBS, you know, CBS News has an online, you know, you can find text articles on their website. It's because of this phenomenon. Uh, documentaries, all kinds of other other things, and so there's this explosion in the amount of news that's being produced, uh, far in excess of any of of, of any real demand for news, um, and so this creates what uh, Daniel Borstein called the 1960s pseudo events. You know, things. I mean, the, the classic example of this, right, is in what 1996, I think it was, all of the major news channels giving hours of coverage to helicopter footage of O.J. Simpson's Ford Bronco being sort of chased all over the L.A. metropolitan area, right? You know, in what world is that newsworthy? Well, in a world where you have to make a lot of television news and you're eager to, to glom onto the next big story, because if you have a story like the Lewinsky scandal or O.J. Simpson or the uh, Scott, the Lacey Peterson murder, these are all things that are very familiar to Americans who are alive uh, at this time, um, you could create a media event that gives you an excuse to, to, uh, to create more demand for the news about this event and then sell more news. Um, and so this is the kind of hyper-saturated environment in which, uh, you know, the Daily Show under John Stewart lands like a rock in the middle of a pond. Yes. And uh, it was funny. It was indisputably uh, funny uh, because the, the target was so ripe for satire. But it also was uh, political. I mean, it had a political purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was democratic, and it was designed to mock the sort of the idiots, the idiots of the the the, the proletariat, as as you might call it, who went along, who believed, uh, you know, the Fox News coverage they were beginning, who believed in these pseudo events having great importance. Well, I, I want to dispute two things about what you've just said. One. One of the things that I think made The Daily Show successful um, is that Stuart never mocked the proletariat. He never mocked the people who believed it. He always, to, to the extent that he politically targeted, especially Fox News, which was a bugbear from the very beginning, it was always the sort of evil or cynical people, like Roger Ailes, who produced this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that Stuart was always very careful about uh, about that, at least early on. And the second thing is, it wasn't simply, it became more political over time. And my sort of theory as to why this is, was that the Stuart is a comedian, he's a very talented comedian, and the absolute, the funniest thing about news when he took over The Daily Show was how absurd the whole enterprise was. The formats, the the self-importance, um, the, uh, the ways that, um, you know, concerned about access, uh, dictated the kinds of questions journalists would ask, the way that politicians would him and haw. Um, that was the funniest thing. And that was the thing that was sort of ripe for, ripe for uh, plucking. And I think part of what happened, the reason the story became more political over time, was simply that the rest of television, the rest of the media caught up to him, right? It, it became, you know, there were certain kinds of things that you could do or say that you knew after 2006 or whatever, the Daily Show would, would eviscerate you for, so you stopped doing them. Um, and so I think it was partially the sort of the uh, change in media brought on by John Stewart and The Daily Show 
that led to less less availability of this kind of humor. And then I think that's when Stuart's own kind of instincts take over uh, as as the media ecosystem begins to fragment. And someone else who who recognised this, as you as you say in your essay, is was Tucker Carlson, who uh, famously had this uh, clash with John Stewart. Uh, was it on Crossfire or Cross Talk? I've forgotten. Cross Crossfire. Uh, Crossfire. Crossfire. Yeah. Uh, where he um, was mocked by Stewart. But let me put it to you. I, I take your point about Stewart not um, mocking the, the proletariat as such. But let me put it to you that even then, Stewart had a sort of self-importance himself and that this only grew with his success. And now when you look at his comeback and you look at the sort of interviews he's done since Trump has gone, he's become uh, the very thing he was mocking in some ways. Um, he's become this person who thinks his job is to condition the mindset of the people. Absolutely. I mean, so Stuart's, it's remarkable how, how consistent Stuart's ideas about news have been. I mean, you can, so you, there's a very interesting 2003 um, sit, interview he does with Bill Moyers, who's sort of this very esteemed, very august newsman. And Moyers is just falling out of his chair to praise Stuart. Um, and I, the reason why was that because Stuart wasn't running a news show, this is always a claim he would make is, I mean, the, in, on the interview with Carlson, he, when uh, Tucker Carlson um, uh, sort of points out that he had had, he had had John Kerry on, who was then the presidential candidate, and had given him sort of softball after softball, Stuart's response was, you, you are CNN. Uh, the, the show that runs into mine is puppet, puppets making crank phone calls. You know, I'm just a comedian, right? Um, and it was always a dodge, and it was always hypocritical. Um, and you got the sense of the reason why journalists love Stuart, and they really love Stuart. He won his first Peabody years before that. That uh, He was already kind of darling of the, the media establishment well before the interview uh, with Tucker Carlson. Um, the reason why is he would say things that they felt they, that they wanted to say, but which journalistic ethics at the time forbid them from saying. But because Stuart wasn't a journalist, he could do it, his way, and he thought this is how journalism ought to be done. If you listen to the what he actually says in the Crossfire interview, he says basically by this pretend both sides is this this simulacra of a debate is hurting America because there are, you know, you you're you're, you're putting on this show instead of actually addressing the real questions, actually addressing the truth, which may may have a, uh, I mean, the 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 kind of Bush era line in American media was. The truth has a liberal bias, right? That was the sort of self self talk at the time among the, the Democratic Party, um, and so Stuart, you know, Stuart thought that rather than a pseudo objective media, you ought to have a media that was transparently opinionated, right? It wasn't um, that, that. That's what he says, and that's what he believed, and that's what he did in the Daily Show. And of course, today, that's at least in America, that's all media. Almost all popular media is transparently opinionated, one way or another. And to what extent do you think Tucker Carlson, by the time he got his own show, which I think was around the time of the election of Donald Trump, he had repackaged the Stuart format. It wasn't as as obviously comedy, but it used in some ways the same techniques and served right back to liberals what they'd been doing to conservatives for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's from, you know, it's an interesting question as to what... Tucker learned explicitly from The Daily Show and whatnot. But whether it was a learning or a kind of convergent evolution, what's remarkable is 
um, how much uh, Tucker Carlson Tonight, the show he had on Fox, that became the most successful news show in cable news history before it was canceled by Fox for basically political reasons or personal reasons even. The format is remarkably like The Daily Show. You know, he has an opening monologue. He reinforces that monologue with kind of discrete clips that are very strategically chosen uh, for their impact. Uh, People and events are packaged into uh, characters and narratives that reoccur sort of night after night. So there's a kind of story, almost a soap operatic storytelling over time that's going on. Um, And then you have cap it off with an interview that, again, is a sort of uh, is an opinionated interview. And one of the things Tucker was notable for was uh, clashing and combating with his guests much more than other Fox News hosts would. And each of those elements, I would argue, was was pioneered by and was perfected by The Daily Show under Stewart. Um, well, uh, Tucker Carlson now lo- is no longer with Fox, as you mentioned, and we should after this we should get into you know how what the what the advancement of his or what the latest bits of his career say about the media environment of today. But before that, I'd like to ask about Trump. You know, because your piece is called uh, "How Stewart Made Tucker." You know, it could easily have been "How Stewart Made Trump," could it not? Well, that's that's a very interesting point. I mean, I think. Uh, and of course, you know, John Stewart stepped down from The Daily Show um, almost the exact same time that, uh, you know, weeks after Trump uh, descended the golden escalator and began his, his primary campaign. Uh, some of the last segments of The Daily Show under John Stewart originally were, were of the Republican primaries, but before Trump was in any, any way the front runner, he was just sort of a punchline uh, for the, the Daily Show, as he had been for years before that. Um, I mean, I think that the the fragmentary media environment which Stewart greatly contributed to was part of what made Trump possible. But honestly, actually, the the, the way that that um, there's sort of a paradoxical way in which the thing that that the Stewart the changes that Stewart brought about really helped Trump was that they gave the they gave journalists permission to turn Trump into the kinds of narratives that he, they wanted to. Then that in turn led to an unbelievable amount of free earned media for Trump. I mean, especially in 20, you know, the, the media, this go around is trying to do things a bit different, but they can't really help themselves. But especially in the first go around, there were other, even when he was a minor figure, right? And any sort of objective, if you, you know, any kind of objective coverage of the Iowa primaries or the debates or whatever, uh, what, Trump would have been a, mind, a footnote. Any any coverage weighted to the probability of winning, as perceived at the time, would have been sort of minor. The fact he 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 did and said things that perfectly fit the narratives that journalists in the post stewart era wanted to tell, and so they featured him very prominently, very early on, and I think that really contributed to his success in twenty sixteen. And I think one of the things Trump learned from media was from reality TV is that there's no such thing as bad press, right? Yes. And that Trump is uh, funny, both to laugh at and to laugh with, so that for liberals, they could laugh at his ridiculousness. And a lot of conservatives or or just angry people watching television would laugh with him because they thought he was serving back in the way that Tucker Carlson served back to the to the the, the liberal establishment that that Stuart seemed to represent to them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, In some ways, Trump is is the first political figure of this sort of post 
broadcast era where the media uh, still has a role to play in amplifying some narratives over others but can't control those narratives anymore. Yes. And to what extent do you think Trump, obviously it's very hard to say what to what extent Trump is aware of what he's doing. People have been trying to do it for a long time. But do you think Trump is cognizant of the way he's playing me- the different media environments off against each other, the way, you know, now he's not on X, he's on True Social, but the way he can use audiences from one against the other and so on. Um, he does seem to have, perhaps unconsciously, a sort of genius for it. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to speculate on what, what he does or doesn't know. I will say that he does seem to grasp at an intuitive level that the media no longer have the ability to shut certainly him out or really narratives that they don't like out of the picture, or at least for the audiences that he cares about. So I think, you know, I think he's quite confident in going to the audience, as it were, in a way that certainly no Republican politician had been before him. Yes. Um, and I think that's part of what helped him stand out in 2016 was every other candidate at some level believed that they needed to go through the media to reach their audience. And he was the only one who grasped instinctively that not only did he not need to do that, but in some ways attacking the media was an effective way to reach his audience. I mean, you remember in his rallies in 2016, he would explicitly sort of um, point to uh, the media pen and get get the audience to sort of look at and laugh at them. He, he exp- very explicitly attacked the media, which ironically also was a very effective strategy for media coverage. Because, you know, journalists, uh, you know, find it, they think it's an attack on our democracy if you, if you, uh, if you attack their profession. So. Sorry, I remember being in, in, the, in the press bit a few times when he would point at the media and say, there they are. And what I found very funny is afterwards, you know, you would hear journalists talk about how intimidating it was on air. Uh, but in reality, like me, they didn't find it intimidating at all. I mean, it was just, it was circus. It was obvious jokes, right? Yes, yes. The only other thing I was going to add was again good to get them bring, bring back bring it back to Stuart. There was there was some evidence from the time that I mean the, the real kind of implicit message of the Daily Show was that all news is fake news. We're just going to be honest about that, and I do think that that trans, that helped transform politics even more into circus than it already had been. Um, do you think uh, I'll try and get away from Trump? But one more question that's Trump related. If we if we Trump had existed or Trump had run in a, it's impossible to answer this question, but I'll give, give it a go anyway. If Trump had been covered by one of the major channels, say a CNN or an MSNBC, in an old fashioned fairness doctrine way, or even post fairness doctrine way, pre Fox, pre John Stewart way, he would not have succeeded in the way that he did. Uh, do you do you not think? Uh, I, absolutely. I mean the the he. You, you, Trump never would have succeeded in the broadcast era. And it doesn't have to do with the fairness doctrine. It has more to do with television programming. Because one of the things that, one of the places where Trump got the most coverage was simply he would have these circus-like rallies. And then the major news networks with nothing else to cover during a random day in the middle of August or July would put them on for hours, right? In a world of three major channels, there's just a bunch of other programming going on. So every the only news that gets made is the news that fits into the evening news broadcast. And I don't think Trump would have been newsworthy. He wouldn't have certainly been as entertaining in that kind of format. 
Uh, and I want to finish by asking you a very uh, difficult question, perhaps, but I, maybe it's easy to answer. Will John Stewart be funny in his comeback? Oh, man. So he will not be, he will certainly never reach the heights of, you know. So John Stewart was at, at his funniest between 2000 and 2001 and 2010, I think, 2009. In it's a period where the news media cycle was at its absolute height. The absolute height of journalistic employment in the United States was 2005. Um, and the absolute height of, of advertising spend in news media was also around the similar time. So you reach this kind of, he hits it at the absolute height. Um, it's the Bush era. And there's a huge amount of just absurdity in American politics uh, that is felt, you know, across quite a wide spectrum, even beyond his sort of liberal audience in that time period. And then, um, especially the kind of later Iraq war and then the financial crisis, there's a huge amount of kind of boiling rage um, that Stewart gives a very effective expression to. Um, and I think it's really with the Obama era that um, this sort of hits a wall. Uh, and I think there's a number of – I think Stewart's own politics are part of it. I think he has difficulty attacking Obama. Um, I think Stuart, I think Obama's sort of style of, of, of intellectual politics was – sort of a, a, um, a foil to the kinds of, of humor that Stuart was very effective at. Um, and, and I think we, there's also some media changes. I think there's a lot that's going on in that era that makes it makes him not funny. Um, in the last few years, I, I, you know, I was one of the only people who actually watched The Problem with Jon Stewart, which is his show on Apple TV that was recently canceled. Um, and... Uh, the he was very funny. He was funniest when he was engaging on topics that were nonpartisan, or where he could sort of play the everyman a little bit. I still think he ha- he still's got it in some sense, but anything that sort of strikes of the the political or the partisan, he's just desperately unfunny. Um, and same thing is true of Colbert as well. Who he helped launch Colbert's career, and I don't know if you've actually tuned into Colbert on on the the Late Show, but. He just doesn't have it anymore. I was going to ask about him next, actually, because he was even more than Stuart, in a way, a kind of news pastiche. Uh, and he was hilariously funny when he first came along. I think we can say that relatively objectively. Oh, absolutely. Uh, objectively the case, yeah. And yet uh, now he is uh, just not funny at all and very and uh, very pompous. So I think, yeah, I think if I had to offer a, a, a conjecture about this, it's, it's that... Um, journalists like everyone else in America have we've been captured within a kind of the fragmentary media environment. So the reason that Colbert can't be funny is he's not exposed to anything surprising in his media environment. He's exposed to liberal media and then the, what's brought in from, from conservative from outside that environment for, to serve that audience. So the same thing that Colbert was, you know, Stuart was doing, finding the best bits of any the news media landscape to serve his audience. Everyone does that now. And you can't help but sort of live in, inside that bubble. I think it's interesting that the time Stewart has been funniest um, in the last few years have been times where he's, he's offered opinions that were sort of a little bit heretical for that, that media class. I don't know if you saw him uh, kind of raising the lab leak hypothesis on the Tonight Show or the Late Show a few years ago. But that was one of the funniest moments uh, of the Late Show, certainly. But it was surprising because you hardly ever would hear that. And I think that's because there's this sort of everyone is captured within this this fragmentary reality. 
Well, and then you have someone uh, like John Oliver, who perhaps this is my British self-hatred, but I found him the most hectoring and the most lecturing and the most obnoxious and therefore not really entertaining of the lot. And he he's the sort of fag end of the of the Stuart era, is he not? Yes, although I must point out to American audiences that means something different. Yeah. In, in the, UK, <laughs> the end of the cigarette. Well, at least I said um, something funny on this podcast, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if well. not on purpose. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's absolutely right. And you can see that in the format, right? The format's designed to have this it's infotainment, right? You're supposed to be informed and entertained at the same time. Um, and, of course, he uses all the same techniques that The Daily Show pioneered. The clips, the character, the characters, the uh, the way they do the interview. If he does an interview, and I, I agree, I, I find it it's it's not funny because it's not surprising, and there's this intrinsic connection between humor and surprise. That's what they can't get outside. They they would have to say something surprising to be funny. To to wrap up, then, John, you don't think uh, you think John Stewart might be funny uh, if he can regain a little bit of self awareness. Do you expect his show to be anything like as popular? And and also, lastly, 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 um, I keep saying lastly, sorry. Uh, lastly, lastly, um, do you think that Stuart went along with Russiagate? Because I can't really remember him really talking about that much. Did he go along with the idea that Trump was a sort of Putin plant? Yeah, that's a great question. So he was, he was sort of off the air during the, the height. Of, I'll take the second question and the first. He was off the air during the height of Russiagate. Um, it's very interesting. He had a, an episode on the news media on the problem with John Stewart, where he really excoriated the media, including the liberal media, CNN, MSNBC, for their coverage of of Mueller and Russiagate. Not because he sympathized with Trump, but because he thought it it radically hampered their credibility. Um, and in some ways, it was a very it's sort of very two thousand zero Stewart criticism. I mean, I think that the the thing that so there's two problems that really hamper Stuart. One, there's no shared media environment that everyone can criticize, right? The assumption in Stuart in 2000, 2001 is everyone has seen the news. Everyone has seen the story they're trying to cover. Everyone has seen the ridiculous elements of it, and now we can all laugh at it together, right? Well, there's no shared story anymore. If you watch MSNBC, you get a different picture than if you're on X. You get a different picture if you're watching Fox. You get a different picture if you're watching CBS, so the, 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 our, 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 there's no one um, context to recontextualize or to, to mock. The other thing would be that his audience has gone along with this, right? His audience, you know, again, in the 2000s, young, liberal, educated, wealthy by income, right? These are the base audience now for John Oliver. These are the base audience for uh, for Full Frontal with Samantha B. Uh, which I think was also canceled. These are the base audience for uh, The Late Show, right? And of course, these are all Daily Show alumni. We, I don't, your viewers might not know, but all of these figures who um, have gone on in this space are all alumni from the Stuart Air Daily Show. Um, so he would have to go after them for the way that they are covering things. And it would be funny, I think, but I don't know if he will have the gumption to do it. And I don't know if they would find it funny, if his audience would find it funny. That being said, I expect at least originally, at least I expect early on that he will have a, a strong audience just driven by kind of Gen X and elder millennial nostalgia, if nothing else. Um, 
But I think that the the media ecosystem that created Stewart, he helped destroy. And so I don't think he'll be able to succeed in the new environment. And I absolutely promise this is the last one uh, because I, I do find this topic so fascinating. But do you remember um, Funny or Die, I think it was called? Yes, yes. Yeah, oh, yeah I do, actually. I'm dating myself. I wonder whether, uh, you know, what is going to happen now is that Funny is going to die um, because now the, the pomposity is on the side of the comedians and that really kind of people will eventually start, you know, losing their sense of humour. It's happened before. And gravitate towards dull, plonking, serious news coverage, uh, information delivery? Well, actually, that's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, the news media in the United States does not have a sustainable business model right now. It's hard to say what one will look like. And and I think that partially this is going to depend on how do AI tools help or hinder journalists, especially local journalists, from increasing their productivity and producing the kinds of news they would need to produce to be able to sustain themselves. So, I mean, I think it's, it's open. You know, I think the future of journalism looks more like what some people are trying to do on Substack and Patreon than it does like an old school newspaper. I, I don't really worry about people losing a sense of humor. Um, it, it, because there's something inevitable, inevitable about this. We've already seen, in some ways, we're, I think, already riding the wave out of sort of peak wokeness circa 2020, is when you make something a total sh- taboo, then you create the conditions under which it's hilarious to puncture that taboo, right? There's simply no the only way you can you can prevent something from being funny is by just is violence using force and power to punish people who laugh at something. But at least in in America, at least in the United Kingdom, maybe more in America than the United Kingdom, uh, the state doesn't have that kind of power. And so all, all this sort of hectoring can do is create the conditions under which you can make absolutely hilarious comedy making fun of it. Um, so I worry much more about the UK where, you know, a kind of a tradition of free speech, but not a legal framework of free speech is now being undermined by legal frameworks that are being used by the state to punish people for, I mean, for, among, <laughs> I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the first kind of really obnoxious hate speech prosecutions was of a YouTuber in Scotland who was making his dog do the Nazi salute. And he found that hilarious, right? You know, it was literally punishing comedy, maybe not comedy to your taste, but comedy. Um, so I worry much more about the parts of the Anglosphere that don't have strong free, free speech protections than about the United States on this front. Well, that is a whole other topic. But uh, John Escodas, thank you so much for coming on to Americano. It's been really, really fascinating to talk to you. That's all for this episode of the Americano podcast. I'd like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferrose, and urge you to leave a generous, kind and warm-hearted review of this podcast uh, on whichever platform you listen to it. <laughs>